before we start today's episode, we just want to acknowledge the uh, passing of Bob Saget. Uh, we do make a reference to America's Funniest Home Videos in this episode, and we just want to note that we recorded this episode back on Friday before news uh, broke earlier today on Sunday as we were editing this episode together for release on Monday. But just want to take a quick note of the passing and just want to say we're going to miss you, Bob. So let's get going with today's episode, CBS Sports 90, The Dream Season. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the dregs of humanity. Episode 231, Submission 2054, CBS Sports 90, The Dream Season. CVS Sports 90 The Dream Season was a slate of programming for CVS Sports in the year 1990. Well, guys, could you imagine going to every big sporting event in one year? I do not make that kind of money. Mike, would you love to do that? I agree with Chico, but also I don't get that much time off in the year. Oh, well. It's just a dream. Could you imagine if we went to every big sporting event? Wait a minute. We could do that from the comfort of our couch. Here's the problem, guys. All the big sporting events of the year are normally separated from different networks. Yeah, you'd have to uh, do some channel surfing. But would you believe, guys, that in one year, one network would have a window where they would have three out of the four major championships in the big four. Ooh, not only that, they would also have NASCAR, the Daytona 500, and college football. Yeah, but there really wasn't it. It's not like CBS had anything big with college football back in 1990. And college basketball. The NCAA basketball tournament. And golf, the Masters. Oh, and the U.S. Open tennis tournament. Wait, wait, there's more? Oh, yeah. World figure skating. Yeah, but no one really... That's not really a big thing. Oh, Super Bowl twenty four. Of course. 1990. This is CBS's final year with their NBA contract. So they got the NBA Finals and the NBA All-Star Game and the NBA Playoffs. But in 1990, now here's where the big part is. 1990 was CBS's first season with Major League Baseball because in 1988, they paid... $1.8 billion. You heard me right. $1.8 billion in 1988 money for four years. 
to broadcast Major League Baseball to take away the rights from NBC and EBC. Mike, can you believe that? $1.8 billion. That's a lot of money, but also, really, MLB Baseball, at least in my childhood, it was every Saturday afternoon on NBC. Oh, yeah, the game of the week back in the 80s was like the big event. Oh, yeah, absolutely. With Joe Garagiola, yeah. And Vince Scully. Yeah, well... Unfortunately, it would be no more because CVS, they were taking MLB for the next four years. But after that is another story, which we'll cover much later this year. But, I mean, think about it. You got the Super Bowl, you got the NBA Finals, and you got the World Series in one year. The only thing you're missing is the Stanley Cup Finals, but the rights to the NHL back in 1990 would have been at the time believe it or not with sports channel america oh yeah i forgot that was also a thing in 1990 yeah the, NA, the nhl on sports channel america wasn't that just a repurposed uh broadcast of a uh, hockey night in canada something like that well also i was going to add at least in my opinion back in 1990 the NHL was the fourth of the four big leagues. Yes. Basketball was really coming up because you had Michael Jordan, among other people, and baseball's baseball and football's football, but hockey was sort of like that fourth tier. It's different nowadays, I think, but yeah, yeah especially my opinion. Yeah, especially yeah. now that ESPN got the rights back. Yeah, now hockey is basically an event. So all of this came at an opportune time for network television. You have NBC, who is dominating with The Cosby Show, Cheers, Night Court, ALF, A Different World, Golden Girls, Amen, 227. Matlock. Matlock! Matlock! And then in second place, a very competitive second place, you have ABC with, let's see, Perfect Strangers. Full House. Full House. Family Matters is in its first season. Growing Pains. Monday Night Football. Monday Night Football. Oh, hold up, guys. 1990. ABC. What premiered in 1990 on ABC? I was just going to mention it. I was just going to mention it. What was America's it? America's Funniest Home Videos. America's Funniest Home Videos, but that's not where I was going with it. Well, MacGyver would have been like in its fourth season, but that's not where you're going either. Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks! Uh, everything goes back to Twin Peaks. Yeah. It would be the television phenomenon of 1990. You know, Twin Peaks made David Lynch's career. No, that was the Elephant Man made David Lynch's career. People think it's a razor head, but no, it's the Elephant Man. <laughs> it also made Anthony Hopkins' career. This is true. This is true. Okay, so you have all of this on NBC and ABC. On CBS, you have Murphy Brown... And 
that's pretty much it. And designing, okay, you have Murphy Brown. Kiesel is saying designing women. You're damn right. Because America in 1990, they wanted Gene Smart and they wanted Delta Burke and they wanted Andy Potts on CBS. Mm-hmm. And and uh, okay, hold so on. Have... wait 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 Pixie Corner. I forget. Get all the people up from Design Women out, Greg. Come on, Michelle Taylor. Come on, Hollywood. Okay, how, how could we forget Rescue Nine One One? Oh yeah. Uh, oh yep yep. Dallas was still on for another couple years. Yeah, but Dallas. Uh, yeah, but Dallas and Falcon Crest would both be on the downswing. And not to landing. Yeah, but was... they're still on. Is is, is my point. Yeah. Uh, and then this, this is also the final season of New Heart. Yes. Mm-hmm. That which totally went completely off the rails, as is evidenced by the final episode. Watch the final episode. That That is the ultimate going off the rails. Yes. Yeah. And that was basically it. And CBS was basically mired in third place. And when you have nothing, you have nothing to lose. So they thought, you know what gets a lot of ratings and a lot of ad revenue quickly? Sports, 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 sports. And so in 1990 or in 1988, I should say, because yes, we're talking about sports in 1990, but this all sort of began in 1988 where. CBS was on a buying spree. They took a whole lot of cash, saw a bunch of uh, rights that were up for bids, and immediately snatched them all up. Yeah, because they also got the Winter Olympics. Yes, they paid... Okay, let's do some math here. They paid $243 million for the Winter Olympics in Albertville, France. $300 million for the Winter Olympics in Lillehammer, Norway. $1 billion for the college basketball tournament. This was before NCAA decided to trademark on the name of a month and a mental condition put together. Also co-owned by a high school athletic association in Illinois. And then another $1.1 billion for Major League Baseball. And then they spent lesser amounts for the Daytona 500, various other events that they could broadcast in their weekend anthology series, the U.S. Open of Tennis, the Masters, the rest of the PGA, the NBA to include the All-Star Game, the playoffs, and the finals. The NFL to include Super Bowl 24. And that's pretty much it. All told, they spent over $7 billion, which is about half of their programming budget. And all in all, sports took up over half of their schedule. So that's a lot of money to play basically the long game. And they were hoping to see a windfall as soon as 1992 when, you know, they had 
the uh, Alberville games. But that was back in 1988. Yeah, 1988, everything's going good right now. Reaganomics is in full swing. The economy's doing great. Everybody's making money hand over fist. But then, between 1988 and 1990, something happened. What? Yeah. But we'll get to that momentarily, because I want to talk about everything that CBS decided to buy up. But now, let's do like a brief synopsis of all the major events that CBS pretty much paid for. Starting in January with Super Bowl 24. Yes, Super Bowl 24 between the defending Super Bowl champion San Francisco 49ers and the AFC champion Denver Broncos. with the passage of time can true greatness be measured but a yardstick for legends might be in order for the san francisco 49ers with surgical efficiency they have reduced the playoffs to their own private clinic and with an intensity reserved for champions the 49ers have one final conquest within reach a conquest that will forever secure their deserved place in history as a team of monumental achievement the burden of untold promise and suffering the pain of past misfortune are the Denver Broncos, proud champions of the AFC, whose grit and perseverance have once again earned them a role in football's premier showcase. And with this bold challenge before them, the Broncos will meet the prodigious talents of John Elway to wipe their slate clean and come away with that long-awaited Super Bowl championship. Entire careers are spent pursuing a dream, and today that dream is a reality in football's ultimate confrontation. The wonderful city of New Orleans, in the background, and a magnificent arena, the Louisiana Superdome, the site of Super Bowl number 24. Weather conditions not a factor, not ever here. San Francisco and Denver, San Francisco trying to repeat, and the Broncos, who've lost three, trying to win their first one. And, well, we kind of talked about this all the way back two years ago when we did the Bud Bowl, but this Super Bowl was... A blowout. Let's just say the Super Bowl was over before the first quarter even ended. But you know, as a Browns fan, oh, it was uh, great to see Broncos get smoked. Didn't they beat you 
all three in the four years when they went to the Super Bowl. Yes, they did. I the did drive not drive the fumble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even remember the third time. Well, the third time I think would have been this year that we're talking about in the 1990. Yeah. I don't even. Yeah, because they never even talk about that one. Yeah, it wasn't that close of a game, I don't believe. Okay, so that's probably why. Okay, do you want to know what the line was on this game? What was the line on this game? The line on this game was 49ers by 12, and the final score was 55-10. to 10. Okay, so they covered. <laughs> that was Basically. The- so do you want me to read the uh, scoring summary of this game? Well, I mean, we could probably just summarize it by saying Montana to Rice, Montana to Craig, Montana to Taylor. Well, Tom Rathman had a one-yard touchdown run. So if you had a prop bet on Tom Rathman scoring a touchdown, you were all good. He was a good fullback back Oh, he had day. two touchdowns. But yeah, let's just say San Francisco had no problem doing nope. anything. Nope. No. Joe Montana was the MVP of this game. Duh. It's like Joe Montana became the MVP. Jerry Rice became a hero. And yeah. everybody started wearing 49ers starter jackets that year. Oh, the 49ers were like the coolest team on the planet back in 1990. Everyone in my schoolyard, in my elementary school, was wearing 49ers gear. They were just the hottest team on the planet in 1990. Joe Montana, he was the man. 22 for 29, 297 yards passing, five touchdowns. Oh, and and you know what? Steve Young, he had two completions for 20 yards in garbage time. That's great. Oh, and I did not even know this. But, hey, Mike, Gary Kubiak actually played some mop-up duty for the Broncos late in the game for Elway. I can absolutely believe that. He was their backup quarterback in the late 80s and early 90s. Yeah. And you know what? Gary Kubiak would, of course, be a future Super Bowl winning coach. So, yep. So he would. would. Yeah. One for three, but he had a 28 yard pass. So he got to complete one pass, which is good. He completed one pass. One pass. And I'd be remiss to mention, unfortunately, in the last week, uh, Dan Reeves, sadly, uh, who was the coach of the uh, Broncos in Super Bowl 24, recently passed away. Yeah, very sad. Yeah, legendary player and a legendary coach. Indeed. Uh, Mike, who could forget him doing the dirty bird with the Falcons when they won the NFC title in 99 against the Vikings? Perhaps the greatest thing ever Dan Reeves ever did. I don't know if it's maybe the greatest thing he's ever done. It was, but 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 it, it's it's up there. But yeah, yeah, the Dirty Bird back in the the nineties. Yeah, Every- with Jamal Anderson. And, yeah. yeah, this was this was before uh, somebody stole it and said, "I feel like chicken tonight." By the way, no, no, I feel like chicken tonight was before that. Yeah, uh, Jamal. If anything, like ninety three, ninety four. Yeah, if anything, Jamal Anderson stole the chicken tonight dance, which in turn would later be stolen by Florida Gulf. Post University when they had that miracle run in like what 2014 or whatever 2014 2015 something yeah. like that yeah when they went to like the sweet 16 I remember that year it was a good year 
Yeah. Not as good as 2017, but still a good year. No, 2017 was terrible. What are you oh, talking about? Oh, other, other than Twin Peaks The Return, there was nothing good about 2017 for well, obvious reasons. There was one thing good. That was our last national championship title. Yeah, of course you'd bring it back to that. No of one course cares. I would. Of course yeah, I would. Of course, of course you would. And you know what? Who cares? Of course, after the Super Bowl was a future entry. Grand Slam. Oh, yes! Yes, with Paul Rodriguez. Grand Slam. <laughs> if, that's not a, if, that, if that's not on the list, then it should be. It's long since on the list. Nice. Oh, my God. But, okay. Well, guys, it's February 11th, 1990. We're in Miami, Florida. And guess what? It's the last NBA All-Star game CBS has before... It goes to NBC. And we're at the Miami Arena in Miami. This is the beginnings of Miami with the NBA. This is like, what, the second year of the Miami Heat? Um, my, yeah, let's see, yeah Miami, second year. Yeah, yeah 88-89 is when they started, yeah. So, yeah, this would be the second year. And they host their very first All-Star game. That's right. So we got the Eastern Conference against the Western Conference and the final score, the East over the West, 130 to 113. But the MVP of that game would be on the losing side. Irvin Magic Johnson was the leading scorer of the game with 22 points, earning MVP honors. Yep. And interestingly enough, the MVP... Also, the person with the most votes on the Western Conference. That would be Magic Johnson. Well, talk about the most votes in the Eastern Conference, Michael Jordan. Because this is 1990. Well, also remember, this is 1990, so you didn't have any sort of online voting yet. So you had those punch ballots in the arenas. If you look at the NBA All-Star Game nowadays, you've got like Steph Curry and LeBron James getting two and three million votes. So th- these numbers are like one-tenth of that. Yeah, this was before you were able to have a PFT comment to rig the vote. This is also in the era before you could use hashtags and Twitter handles to, uh, to be votes for All-Star Games. Which, as I'm seeing all over Twitter, the, the Cavs, they're pushing like their three All-Star, uh, potential All-Stars, like every day. RT, RT, RT. We need the RTs. So... Well, it is in your city this year, so of course they're going to make a big push to get one of their guys in the game. Well, a- absolutely. But, I mean, also, we actually have a good team for the first time without LeBron <laughs> it, James in like it, You know what? The Cavs years. are decent. The Cavs they're, are They're in the decent. top four in the East. That's not decent. They're That's very good. good. They're good. Chico's just coming across as a Charlotte Hornets fan. Yeah. Pissed off he's in the 11 seed right now. Oh, okay. So do you want me to read the starters for both conferences in the All-Star game? Please. Okay. For the Eastern Conference, we got Isaiah Thomas, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley, and Patrick Ewing. And in the Western Conference, we got John Stockton, Magic Johnson, James Worthy, A.C. Green, and Akeem the Dream Elijah Wan. 
And if I'm correct, and I think I am, every one of those people is in the Hall of Fame except for AC Green. Yeah, AC Green is in the Virgin Hall of Fame. (laughs) Not wrong, though. Not wrong. Now, do you want me to read the backups for each conference? There are a lot of backups. Okay, here we go. From the Eastern Conference, we got Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale, Joe Dumors, Dominique Wilkins, Reggie Miller, Scotty Pippen, and Dennis Rodman. And what I find curious is this is Reggie Miller, Scotty Pippen, and Dennis Rodman's first All-Star games. And also, I think looking at the rest of that roster for the uh, Eastern Conference, I think every single one of those players is in the Hall of Fame. Yep. And then you have the Western Conference. Okay, with- here we with David Robinson. What the? There's a guy named Fat Lever. You've never heard of Fat Lever? No. He was like the king of the triple double back 30 years ago. Wow. He, he was like a six three guard. And again, and we've talked about this about Doug Moe uh, in Denver. Yeah. He was he was like the beneficiary of like the late years of Doug Moe in Denver. He, he'd be like your 25 points, uh, oh. 10 rebound, 10 assist guy. Again, like six foot three. He was a beast. Okay. All right. Tom Chambers of the Phoenix Suns. Rolando Blackman replacing an injured Carl Malone as a reserve. And then we got Clyde the Glide Drexler. Chris Mullen, and then Kevin Johnson. And also, I should note, 1990, David Robinson's rookie year. Wow. Yep. Because remember, he was drafted in 87, but he missed two years because he had naval commitments. Correct. And also, again, looking at that roster, I think minus Fat Lever and Rolando Blackman and Tom Chambers, I think every single one of those players is in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And then the coaching matchup, Chuck Daly for the East, Pat Riley for the West. And Two legends, but also, if I remember correctly, they were in the NBA Finals in 89, and that was sort of their reward, whoever the coaches Pistol, were in the Pistons Finals. and Lakers, yeah. 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 No, that was, second straight year they were in the Finals. Yeah. And also, this would be the first year uh, in a long time you wouldn't have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because he retired in 89. That is true. He did. Wow. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, but it was like the East had a 40-23 lead in the first quarter, and they just basically took the game from then and there. So it's not like much matters in the all-star game. I mean, at least 130 to 113 compared to today, it was like a defensive like battle. Although now today, don't they do the uh, thing where they have the uh, untimed fourth quarter now? Yeah. The, the yeah. fourth quarter nowadays is like whoever reaches like 21 points or 24 points. I think it's 24 leading. Yeah. I think yeah, it's 24. Above the, the leader at the end of the third quarter wins. So that gives the chance for the team that's behind to come back. But yeah, it's a different version, especially, I'm sorry, the, the game got really disinteresting when they're playing like a 185-165 shootout. Oh, yeah. You, we talked about Doug Moe. Those would be the type of games you would have loved to have coached. 
Just like no defense. We're getting a lot of mileage out of Doug Moe the last couple of weeks. Oh, come on. Everyone loves Doug Moe. We're going to be saying that people don't love Doug Moe. I'm just saying we're getting a lot of mileage out of him. Well, you know what? We're going to be part of the Doug Moe Renaissance. People are going to have a new appreciation for Doug Moe when they listen to this podcast. Okay. Well, that's the NBA All-Star game. So now let's talk about the great American race, the Daytona 500. Put yourself in Kenny Schrader's shoes. For three years, he's had the fastest car. He's sitting on the pole. Everyone expects him to win the Daytona 500. And then, disaster strikes. Put yourself in Dale Earnhardt's seat. He's won just about every race there is to be run. But he's never won the Daytona 500. And people keep asking why. How would you like to be Rusty Wallace, the defending national champion, buried in the back of the pack and considered by experts as nothing more than a long shot today? The smile, the confidence. At Daytona, every driver has them. But in the grandstands and the garages, there's also a note of weariness, a discernible tenseness, because Richard Petty is back. Daytona has been more than tough the past few years for King Richard, but the word is he's coming back. Watch out for Petty. He's got a good car and a good chance, and that's all Richard Petty ever needed. Cathedral of Speed, the Daytona International Speedway, drying out after an all-night rain, muggy weather, but fast times are expected. 150,000 of these people will crowd into this superstructure today, and they're the lucky ones, for the last reserved seat went last July. Hi, as I make my way through this crowd, it's time to say I'm Chris Economaki, getting my annual thrill after a cold, snowy, and raceless winter. And Greg, you actually had a very vivid description of what happened but go on okay yeah so this is the 32nd running of the event and by the way during the running of this race according to truth by consensus wikipedia the film crew for the uh tom cruise movie days of thunder was shooting b-roll during this race so that's awesome okay but here we go here's the dramatic ending to the race so okay Dale Earnhardt had dominated this race. He had a lead through three quarters of the Daytona 500. So he had a lead of 40 seconds until lap 193 when Jeff Bodine spun into the first turn, causing the third and final caution of the race. So Derek Cope assumed the lead by staying out of the uh, ruckus. And then the top five on the restart were Cope, Bobby Hillen Jr., Earnhardt, Terry Labonte, and Bill Elliott. Elliott dispatched Cope and Hillen simultaneously with help from Jeff Bodine, who was one lap down. So with a few laps remaining, Rick Wilson in the Ramo car lost an engine, and a piece of metal bell housing from that engine had tumbled to a stop 
onto the backstretch. And on the last lap, Dale Earnhardt ran it over and shredded his right rear tire. He let go of his throttle and let his car climb the banking off turn three. And Derek Cope was able to drive by Earnhardt to take his first ever Winston Cup victory in the Daytona 500. And according to Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, his previous best career finish was sixth place in Charlotte the previous year. Okay. Man, that sucks, doesn't it? It really does. You're Dale Earnhardt. You have a lead through most of the race. You're thinking, okay. Because, I mean, Dale Earnhardt, he had never won the Daytona 500 until, like, 1998. So probably in, like, 1990s, like, okay, this is it. I'm going to win it. And then that happens, and then... And then it's over. It's over. And then you lose to, like, some jabroni. And then we go into March, which is basically the month reserved for basketball. So this is going to take a lot of energy in me, so I'm going to just go through all 64 teams here. In the East, from 1 to 16, Connecticut, Kansas, Duke, LaSalle, Clemson, St. John, UCLA, Indiana, California, UAB, Temple, BYU, Southern Miss, Richmond, Robert Morris, and Boston University. In the Midwest, from 1 to 16, Oklahoma, Purdue, Georgetown, Arkansas, Illinois, Xavier, Georgia, Carolina, Southwest, Missouri State, Texas, Kansas State, Dayton, Princeton, Texas Southern, Northeast Louisiana, and Tosin State. By Carolina, Chico obviously meant North Carolina because there might be some listener who is a Gamecocks alumni angry because they were not the eighth seed in the Midwest in 1990, probably. In the Southeast, from 1 to 16, Michigan State, Syracuse, Missouri, Georgia Tech, LSU, Minnesota, Virginia, Houston, UC, Santa Barbara, Notre Dame, UTEP, Villanova, East Tennessee State, Northern Iowa, Coppin State, and Murray State. And in the West, I think we'll go from 16 to 1 this time. Little Rock, South Florida, Illinois State, Idaho, Ball State, Loyola, Marymount, Colorado State, Providence, Ohio State, Alabama, New Mexico State, Oregon State, Louisville, Michigan, Arizona, And the ultimate champion, the last team standing, if you will, the running Rebels of UNLV. Yes. But this was, I think, I mean, this was an exciting NCAA tournament because I believe now I I know this is going to be triggering for you, Chico, but I'm just going to mention it here. The regional final between Duke and UConn, which was at the Meadowlands, had an exciting last play of the game where Christian Leitner made a shot at the buzzer to win it. Not that shot. That's two years later. This is another shot that sent them to the final four. Okay, This is another shot. There's going to be picking all around the clock. Duke still has one timeout left in case they can't get anything going. Dove Hennefeld has scored four of Connecticut's six points in the overtime. All right, this is interesting. UConn not playing the passer. All right, here is Leitner with the shot, and it scores! And Duke wins! And this 
beat UConn, which, I mean, UConn in 1990, I mean, just... And this is after, also when Bobby Hurley became a stud muffin. We know. Yes, and this just, I mean, it was a devastating loss for UConn. It was probably, like, Jim Calhoun's best chance at getting to the Final Four because he hadn't gotten to the Final Four yet. But you know what? He'd get it back at least nine years later in the championship game against Duke. So, yeah, he'll have something to look forward to at the end of the decade. But also, I mean, in 1990 in the NCAA tournament, you had the miracle run of Loyola Marymount, which was story, the oh, story yeah. miracle run of Loyola Marymount. And I remember watching, it seems like I was watching all of Loyola Marymount's games when I was in my 10th year watching the tournament in Arizona. And I was thinking to myself, I think Loyola Marymount, Michigan was the very first upset I've ever seen. Yeah, because Michigan was the national champion, the defending national champion in 89. Defending national champion. And this was a high-scoring game. I mean, this was, it was both a route and a high-scoring game. Uh, ultimately, Loyola Marymount beat Michigan by a score, I am not kidding here, 149 to 115. Well, that's the type of basketball that Loyola Marymount played. They had Paul Westhead as coach. Also, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't inform people about, like, why Loyola Marymount was so huge that year. Why was Loyola Marymount so huge that year? Well, their big star, uh, his name was Hank Gathers. He died on the court in March of 1990. He had a heart attack and died. Yeah, that was during the uh, West Coast Conference tournament. So, because they didn't complete the tournament. So, because Loyola Marymount was the regular season champion, they gave the tournament bid to Loyola Marymount. If I had to go out in the court, like in the NCAA tournament after, like, the best player on the team died, I don't know how I could handle that, the emotion of that. But... They managed to channel that emotion into something great. And the one memory people have of this tournament that is unforgettable was Bo Kimball at the free throw line, shooting all of his free throws with his left hand the same way Hank Gavers would make his free throws. And every shot he made from the free throw line went in during the tournament. He That's did not amazing. did not miss a shot. Yep, and he actually continued doing that in the NBA. He he was a, a pretty high pick like the following year in '91, but he did not have any success in the NBA. But he continued doing the left-handed free throws in honor of Hank Gathers. So Loyola Marymount's run came to an end as UNLV beat Loyola Marymount by a final score of one thirty-one to one hundred one. And joining Duke and UNLV in the uh, Final Four would be Arkansas and Georgia Tech. And, oh, Georgia Tech, Mike. They had, um, what was it, Dennis Scott, Kenny Anderson, and I forget who else they had. Um, was it? Uh, let me just look. Is Dennis Scott, Kenny Anderson, and I want to say the last name was Oliver. Brian Oliver, yeah. That was Lethal Weapon 3, oh, yeah. Brian Oliver, okay. Lethal Weapon 3, yep. And of course, 
Dennis Scott would go on to great fame with the Magic. Kenny Anderson, of course, Nets legend. And of course, you have the multi-talented Matt Geiger. Can't forget him. And I really think we need to give a nod to the coach of that team, Bobby Kremens, legend down at Georgia Tech. All right. So in the uh, national semifinals, Duke beat Arkansas 97-83, and UNLV beat the uh, Yellow Jackets of Georgia Tech 90-81. And then the championship game, uh, it was just, uh, this was ugly. Oh, yeah. A record 30-point deficit by the time all was said and done, and UNLV hammered the Duke Blue Devils by a final score of 103 to 73. And this was like, I think all the national championship games CBS had up until when they got the rights from NBC in 82, all the championship games had been classics. They were like down to the wire games, like North Carolina, Georgetown, 82, NC State, Houston in 83, Georgetown and Houston 84, Georgetown Nova in 85, Louisville Duke in 86, 87, uh, Indiana Syracuse, 88, Kansas, Oklahoma, 89, Michigan and Seton Hall the previous year. They went to overtime in the championship game. And then in 1990, nope, 30-point blowout. 30-point blowout. Larry Johnson and Stacey Ogman of the Running Rebels beat Bobby Hurley and Christian Leitner of the Blue Devils. And yeah, it was not even close. Well, remember back in 1990, UNLV was the team. Mm-hmm. Like you said, Larry Johnson, Stacy Augman, and Tark the Shark coaching the team. Jerry Tarkanian. Yeah, that was the, uh, the team in the uh, NCAA to beat in 1990. And in 1991, they were undefeated until Duke ran into them in the semifinals and they got their revenge the next year. And I think to this day, other than probably Kentucky in 2015, I think nobody has been close to going undefeated. Gonzaga last year. Oh, that's right. Gonzaga was undefeated. To Yeah, I forget. Oh, God. I don't want to even... Remember that. Oh, that national championship game last year was so awful. Yeah. Oh, thanks for bringing back those memories, Mike. You're welcome. Amanda Walker on line one, by the way. Oh, but this national championship and this final four is more remembered for what happened in between those two days. For one reason, Brent Musburger. Then the longtime announcer at CBS Sports got fired by CBS on the Sunday morning between the Final Four and the National Championship. And How well, do you get fired on your day off? On April Fool's Day, no less. Well, here's the thing. CBS was going to broadcast Major League Baseball, of course, in the spring of 1990, like maybe about a couple weeks later, they would be beginning their run on Major League Baseball. And Brent Musburger had been tapped to be the play-by-play man for CBS. Well, during that, 
he was in the middle of his contract renegotiations with CBS. And well, CBS and Brent, they had some back and forth uh, drama between the two of them. And ultimately, CBS decided, you know what? Brent, he's got too many assignments. Now with Major League Baseball play-by-play, you know what? We don't need him anymore. We'll just fire him. Yep. And you know who they got to replace that guy? Who? Jack Buck. That's right. They would put Jack Buck in his place. Because remember, Jack Buck was going to be the number two play-by-play guy for the B games on CBS. So they put him in the A slot after Brent got fired. Yep. And and replacing him on the NFL today, Greg Gumbel. And replacing him for the next round of college basketball. Hello, friends. Yeah. And you know what? The funny thing is, Jim Nance was the uh, studio guy for the NCAA, I think, with... uh... Oh, guys, you're going to love this. Do you know who his studio... His co-host... In the uh, Jim Nance for the NCAA tournament was in 1990. Um, Mike, you're gonna love this. Uh, are you? Are you, are are you, you sitting, sitting down, down here? Yes. All right, you ready? Okay. Bring it, Mike Francesa. <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, remember, guys. WFAN had just started Mike and the Magic, but Mike Francesa got into national prominence because here's the thing. The year before, now this would be the first year in 89 when WFAN was on 660, and this this would be the first year that WFAN would have Don Imus on in the morning. So Mike Francesa was doing the sports updates for Imus because remember at the time, the afternoon slot on FAN was held by Pete Franklin, Mike. If I'm not mistaken, Pete Frankel was the very first voice who broadcast on WFAN when it moved to uh, uh, 1050. No, 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 because it was Jim Lampley who was the first voice on WFAN. Because I think uh, Pete Franklin was like, had a heart attack or something because he was originally going to be the first host, but it had, his uh, first show had to be like delayed for a couple months. So Jim Lampley had to fill that spot for a little bit until. Uh, he got ready for that. So, but okay. So, Mike Frances is doing the updates for Imus. And Frances is like, yo, I think Seton Hall, they have a good chance to go to the final four. And Imus is like, no, no way. It's like, I will bet you a car, Mike, that Seton Hall will not go to the final four that year. And what happens? Seton Hall Hall goes to the Final Four that year. And nearly wins the national championship. And Imus had to pay up and give him a car. By the way, it was Pete Franklin who was the first voice after the uh, frequency moved to 66, not 1050. My mistake. Yes. Yeah, because they would have moved to 66 in October of 88 during the uh, 88 NLCS. Because actually, I remember this because I know... Um, so here's a fun, uh, New York broadcasting fact. Do you know who the last voice ever on WNBC radio was? Uh, 
Oh, oh, me, 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 pick me. Pick what me, is pick what me. is it? It was Alan Kolbs. No, I said the last oh, voice oh, heard. The last on... voice heard. Oh shoot. I don't know who You're on. not gonna believe this. I know the line was You heard the countdown. It's over. Do you know who said it? Roger no. Grimsby. I God, I knew that. You know what? Now I can picture a name to the face here. Ten. Nine, nine, eight, eight, seven, seven six, five, five, four, four three, three, two, one. one. You heard the countdown. It's over. Because Roger... Like I, knew what the, I knew what the line was. I did not know who said it. Yeah, Roger Grimsby, because remember, uh, Roger Grimsby had been fired by WABC in like 85 or 86, and uh, WNBC picked him up. And he was actually there at the studio like doing the report on WNBC-TV. So WNBC then switched to Al Roker and Don Imus at the WFAN van at Chase Stadium during the NLCS. Because, obviously, that night, they would have been broadcasting Game 3 of the NLCS in 88 between the uh, Dodgers and Mets that night. So, yeah, Brent got fired from CBS. And actually, we have some clips here from... Brent afterwards on Late Night with David Letterman talking about the situation as to how everything all came about. I assumed after this uh, was announced, first of all, when you came out here, I said congratulations. Yeah. It's because of all of the surrounding press and, and all of the attention, it's almost like you've won something. And I'm just thinking, oh, yeah, can, nice going. Way to go. You lost your job. Yeah, congratulations. I'm, you know, I'm out on the streets, unemployed, and got all that free publicity. Now, you know, when I heard about this, and first of all, I thought the timing couldn't have been stranger. Oh. Well, strange. It was horrible. Well, they were, uh, where I live, they were using it as uh, to uh, promote the news coming up, little 10-second things all during the day. Brent Musburger gets fired, and I'm thinking, first of all, could it have been one of those Andy Rooney deals? Did he say something dumb? Did, did they suspend him? Did they fire him? Uh, did, he, did he do something? Did he beat somebody up? And I said, no, probably not. And then I'm thinking, they're out there in Denver. CBS has got all of the sports executives out there. There's parties and stuff. Maybe he had a couple of drinks and was hitting on somebody's wife. But, but you know, it was so strange because I'm thinking, what could he have done not to be re-signed. I just, it was very hard to imagine. We still don't know. But let me tell you an anecdote of how it ended. Okay. 22 years at CBS, like you pointed out. And here it is at 2.30 in the morning, my brother, Todd, attorney Todd, called out to an elevator bank, 19th floor of the Hyatt Hotel in Denver, uh -huh. and he is told that it's over. That's it. And Neil Pilson, the president of CBS Sports, says to Todd, uh, Todd, perhaps we should issue a joint statement that the two sides have broken down here and just gonna go on the, no wait todd says that's not what happened you issue the statement yeah. so neil says well todd uh what would you like me to say oh we have a we have a picture is that there, the guy right the there guy right there that's the one who said it <laughs> so uh that's So, uh, they're, they're, they're just up the street. We can go find the guy. Yeah, it, <laughs> hey. uh, so, so my brother says, Neil, just tell the truth for once if you can. Yeah. So then instead of waiting, you know, like they should have died for the championship game. It, it, it was horrible, David, to yeah. make that announcement. 
I felt badly for the players. I felt badly for the teams. I felt badly for everybody concerned with the Final Four. Because yeah, suddenly it, it, I, I mean, destroyed. that whole tournament had plenty of drama in and of itself. It had yeah. enough side stories, I enough say, interest, enough, enough really kind of heart-tugging uh, uh, scenarios. We, you didn't need this. You got that right. Uh, I didn't need it either. Yeah. <laughs> did, did you have... How long have these uh, contract negotiations been going on? Oh, for about a year and very easily. Smoothly. In fact, my brother said this is the easiest negotiation ever. Uh, you know, we suspect, in fact, we're convinced that it was a charade all along. They're For a take full me, year they're leading you yeah, along? They're going to take me as deep as they can and get rid of me. But why? To, to what advantage? We don't know, other than uh, perhaps they were not satisfied with my ability as a baseball announcer, which had never yet been tested under fire. That's well, the only thing we Yeah, but if they, okay, say for a second that that is the case. Wouldn't they just tell you that uh, a year ago when well, they're uh, trying to get the contract? I'd like to League think baseball? that after 22 years with with any employer that yes they would call you in and they'd say Brent we're not satisfied with you as a baseball announcer let's make another kind of deal never happened mm -hmm. never a breakdown of any kind it was unbelievable yeah I mean I hope nobody gets fired the way I did man 230 but that's morning. that's broadcasting that's the way it always happens something something well, you silly know, like I've never that. been fired yeah from anything now now the other thing I thought maybe was the problem was now you, your brother Todd is he a real lawyer yeah oh yeah <laughs> Or is he just carrying the bags? Well, <laughs> you know, how, David, how, how do you fire your agent when he's your brother? Yeah. Uh, you know what? You know how trapped I am? Uh, I keep the guy. So then, so then last night, now, by the way, I thought you did a, a great job of handling it. Uh, the, the final four weekend, and especially right. during the final game and uh, at the end of the final game and so forth. And then last night, you go on the show with uh, Sam Donaldson and uh, Diane Sawyer, and you started naming names and so on and so forth. You, so you must have really been kind of burning inside about this. Yeah, it, it, and I would not have named names or said anything at all, David, until suddenly the newspapers from around the country came in and all these yeah. anonymous quotes attributed to CBS executives that I'd been horrible to work with, yeah. that crews didn't like me, that I had producers fired, that I was an anchor monster. That's not true. Yeah. I mean, it just never went on. And these guys had to have a campaign to justify what they did. Yeah. All they had to do to Larry Tish is justify we're saving, uh, you know, a couple million bucks. I mean, that's all Larry. He signs off on yeah. it in a minute. But, you know, the rest of the people, what's, what's going on? So they got to portray you as a bad guy. Yeah. That's when I got emotional, and that's when I erect. Well, I think you're entitled to those emotions after nearly a quarter of a, uh, a century. It was, it was very honest years. on my part. Yeah. I mean, people probably don't get to see that side of me, but I was, I was angry. And, and I lash back. Now, let me ask you one other thing. This is uh, just a, a question in theory. CBS, it seems to me like this couldn't have come at a worse time for them because they're not exactly on top of the broadcasting world. No, as so, you may have noticed. So yeah. to, to let one of their bona fide blue chip guys yeah, go, that, that seems like a, a mistake. I called uh, Tish after I'd been axed on Monday. I, I, called, him, said, I called him. I called him too. Did you get the, yeah, I got I just, He picked up the phone and I, I, I said, I sent him know, a tape. <laughs> 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 and I said, you know, Larry, I want to tell you about the deception. I went through, through part of it. And then uh, I said, you know, one of the things about this that strikes me is that this network can't get anything right. And he says, <laughs> tell me about it. You know, there's a guy admitting yeah. it. You know, yeah. they just... Uh, it's, it's interesting that, that, the, that the people... Well, I won't get into this, but there's a really different uh, attitude and, and personality and ego structure of the people who are in front of cameras and the people who are in front of desks. Well, the ones at the desk, I think... Some of them, not all of them, so resent talent and what they can do and how much they earn and how yeah. easy they make it look yeah. as a livelihood. Well, say it, I mean, a lot of NBC they're, guys... They're weenies. Do, Admit I, it. They're oh, weenies. Yeah. Absolutely. And worse. And boneheads. <laughs> so that's the situation there, and that's the story. But do you know who CBS tried to hire 
in Brent's place to get as the number one play-by-play announcer for MLB? I only know this because you told me uh, right before the show they wanted Al Michaels. That's right, because remember, Al Michaels in 1990 would have been coming off doing Major League Baseball play-by-play because this is going to be hard to believe, folks, but in 1990, he was more well-known for baseball than football. Because remember, he started out with the Cincinnati Reds. He did. And then he went over to uh, ABC with his profile there, and obviously he became the main face of their baseball coverage and then got Monday Night Football out of it. And then he was hired away to NBC, I want to say, when they regained the Sunday night package. In 2005. Yes. Al Michaels and ABC were in a dispute dating back from 89. In ABC's words, a minor internal personal matter that had been resolved to the satisfaction of Mr. Michaels and ABC Sports when... Michaels resigned with ABC in June of 1990. And the issue was during the 1989 World Series between the A's and the Giants, Al Michaels had hired his daughter for the network as a messenger. I guess they were not happy, I guess, with ABC about that. Nope. So all of that happened in March and April, right as. Major League Baseball is about to start. And CBS had uh, a few games on, but ultimately they also had the All-Star Game, the League Championship Series, and the World Series. We're going to talk about that later. But also in April, they had the sounds of Ivory's tinkling and the tradition, unlike any other, the Masters. and. If I'm not mistaken, uh, Jim Nance was calling that in 1991. Yeah, because at this point, I think uh, Jim Nance had been doing the um, the studio hosting, I think, from like, 87. Because I know he did like some of the uh, play-by-play at the holes in the 86 Masters. Because I know Brent Musburger was doing the studio hosting. And I think like Nance took over like the following year at 87. In 1990... Nick Faldo, who was the defending Masters champion, would win his second straight Masters title in a sudden-death playoff, defeating Raven Floyd on the second playoff hole. The playoff began on the 10th hole, where both made poorer. Then on the 11th hole, Floyd put his seven-iron approach shot into the pond left of the green, while Faldo hit to within 18 feet of the cup. He lagged his birdie putt to within a few inches and tapped it in for the win. It foiled Floyd's attempt to win a major in four different decades. Afterwards, Floyd said, This is the most devastating thing that's ever happened to me in my career. I've had a lot of losses, but nothing like this. And Floyd had led uh, after the second and third rounds. And, yeah, he just basically blew that uh tournament when he uh hit that ball into the water very sad that's a really bad way to go out no it is not a good way to go out but 
considering all that we've had, I think so far, like the most exciting things this year were probably the ending of Daytona and this. Yeah, the ending of Daytona and then the ending of the Masters. And then May, baseball. Yeah. And then June, we got the NBA playoffs during that period going in full swing, taking us to the last NBA finals on CBS. Yep. It was the Pistons, coached by Chuck Daly, against the Portland Trailblazers, coached by Rick Adelman. When you are the world champions, you have that certain look. It's not something you can learn, it's something you acquire through greatness. And throughout this series, the Detroit Pistons have shown the Portland Trailblazers what greatness is all about. And the backcourt? They are proving to be the best guards this side of Buckingham Palace. When the Trailblazers brought this series to their home court, it was expected they would dominate. Instead, they learned very quickly how fast things can fall apart. If Detroit has the look of champions, Portland has the look of frustration. And now, down three games to one, they are looking at summer vacation. Since they began playing professional basketball, only two franchises have repeated as champions. And the headline Detroit is looking for tomorrow has three words, back to back. The rugged beauty of the Pacific Northwest has been the backdrop for this leg of the NBA Finals. Everywhere you look, there's a snapshot. And it's not easy taking care of the land, but they do it with pride and distinction here. And when they say this is blazer country, they mean it. The land they are protecting tonight is right there, the Portland Memorial Coliseum. The Portland Trailblazers arrived here tonight hoping upon hope that they can get back into the series. It's not embarrassing, but it sure is serious being down three games to one. On the other side, the faces of the Detroit Pistons. They arrived three games to one up, and before the game, they pledged to get the job done tonight, and somewhere inside this building, they have champagne on ice. And so welcome to the 1990 NBA Finals, game five between the Detroit Pistons and the Portland Trailblazers. And good evening, everybody. I'm Pat O'Brien. Well, here it is, the first championship trophy of the 1990s, and the way Detroit is playing, this could be gracing their trophy case in no time. And it was, well, Portland Trailblazers won one game, but Detroit won four. You know what? It was a really, really sort of really dramatic semifinal with the Pistons beating the Bulls 4-3 to and the Trailblazers beating the Suns 4-2. to I mean, these were the four teams that were the hotness in 1990. The Pistons, and, the Bulls, the Blazers, and the Suns. And the first year in a long time that the Lakers didn't advance to at least the conference finals. 
Yep. Or the NBA Finals in that matter. This was, I, this was actually the first Finals since 1979 not to involve either the Lakers or the Celtics. Wow. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, because they were at least in one final every year in the 80s. That's something. But, of course, Game 5, the Pistons would win the NBA championship on a shot with 0.07 seconds left on the clock. Oh, Greg, I need to teach him math. There were 0.7 seconds left. That's 10 times more than what you said. My response? So I messed up. Shut up! (laughs) By the microwave, Vinnie Johnson. Down. Now everyone's on the baseline, so they're in a 1-4 set. That way, if Thomas beats his man, someone will have to pick him up. There's the pick out. Vinnie Johnson with one second to go. His shot is good! Seven-tenths of a second. Timeout, Portland. They're going wild at the Palace because... They are watching one of the great teams of recent years in the NBA, Hubie Brown, with their guttiness. I thought that was Hubie Brown who was doing some of the announcing there. Okay. Yeah, because I think oh, he yeah. would have because I think he would have taken over at CBS, like because I think uh let's see, around eighty six or eighty seven, like Tommy Heinsohn was taken off and they put Billy Cunningham in right after he got fired with the Sixers. And then I think Billy Cunningham got like a front office job with the Heat, and then they put Hubie in that spot. Well, Billy Cunningham, I believe at one point, was a majority owner of the Heat. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, you can't have that type of conflict of interest. You can't be uh, a partial or majority owner and also have a job with the network. Makes sense. Yep. Also, it's interesting that this finals – came down to that shot with 0.7 seconds left because this was the first year the NBA used the tenths of a second uh, clock in the final minute. Because if you remember back in 89, when Jordan hit that shot, you know, which I don't know what I'm talking about, the one you that know, the shot. fans, they instituted the tenth of a second increments in the uh, clock in the final minute of each quarter uh, due to that. So Sort of an historic moment, if you will. And that was basically the climax of the final year for the NBA on CBS because the next year, the package would move to NBC. Yes. And as we mentioned in the National Anthems episode, the last thing ever played on the NBA on CBS after a montage of various clips of the 17 years of the NBA on CBS using the last waltz from the band from the movie, the last waltz was the national anthem rendition by Marvin Gaye at the 1983 NBA all-star game as the credits rolled. Okay. So now we go into July 10th, 1990 where we have a major league baseball all-star game. Now we're not going to spend too much time on this, because we have an episode in July that's going to be dedicated to this and something that happened during this game, which we're going to cover involving another entry that we're going to cover after we cover this game. And you know what I'm talking about, Mike? I need a flowchart after that description, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. 
let's just say this was a scoreless game through six innings. The American League scored the only two runs of this game in the seventh inning, and the final score was 2-0 American League. And the MVP of this All-Star game, Julio Franco, who played it like 40 at the time. He would have been 40 years old because, damn it. Well, I'm just joking, but he probably, he would have probably been, I think, maybe uh, early 30s, mid 30s at that point. Julio Franco was 31 when he won the All-Star Game MVP award that year. Well, he was like 44, 45 when he was with the Mets in like the mid to late 2000s. Yeah. And then we go to August and September. Now, late August, early September, that, of course, is the U.S. Open in New York City. New York City! Technically flushing, okay? (laughs) And uh, CBS had the coverage of that, um, and I'll just go over the results in brief. Pete Sampras beats Andre Agassi straight sets. Gabriela Sabatini beats Steffi Graf, also in straight sets. And in the doubles, Peter Aldrich and Danny Visser beat Paul Anacone and David Wheaton. 6-2, 7-6, 7-3, and 6-2. In the women's doubles, Gigi Fernandez and Martina Navratilova defeated Yana Novotna and Elena Sokova, 6-2 and 6-4. And in the mixed doubles, you had Elizabeth Smilly and Todd Woodbridge, both of Australia, beating Natasha Zereva and Jim Pugh. Now, and this was notable because this was actually Pete Sampras's first career Grand Slam title, his first U.S. Open title, and he became the youngest U.S. Open men's single champion to that date at 19 years, 28 days. And if I'm not mistaken, didn't Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi play again, like in the 2002 final? In the 2002 U.S. Open? In the final round, I think, in 2002? Uh, let me check. Yeah, yes, they to... did. They met in the final in 2002. Yep. Pete Sampras won in four sets over Andre Agassi. And, and frankly, uh, one of the great rivalries in sports during the 90s, Sampras versus Agassi. Oh, yes. That was one of the legendary uh, feuds in uh, 1990. Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi in tennis. Yeah. Uh, how far has American tennis fallen in the last 30 years? Boy, I would love to have. Like I, It's like I could name on one hand the number of uh, notable American tennis players right now. Venus, Serena, John Eisner. That's it. And the notable thing John Eisner did was he played. Oh, wait, a game. Andy Roddick. Thank you, Brain. No, Andy Roddick doesn't play anymore, silly. Okay, there you go. But the notable thing John Eisner's ever done is he played a, a match for like three days. It's Not like, even joking. It's like he played a match that rivals most cricket finals. Yeah, it was against uh, Mahout. I forget the first name, but it was like the 2010 French Open, was it? It was a Wimbledon. Wimbledon? It was a Wimbledon, yeah. Yeah, and it went to like 72-70 or something like that. Yeah, and the funny thing is Eisner did it like again, I think like a couple of years ago. But the funny thing is I want to note about the U.S. Open tournament. Boris Becker was the lone non-American 
in the semifinal round with the three Americans being Agassi, Sampras, and John McEnroe. This is today's episode of Who Are Three Men Who Have Never Been in My Kitchen. 22,000 big ones. 22,000 big ones. 22,000 big ones. That's probably what Pete Sampras won after he won the U.S. Open. 22,000 big ones. Yeah, we tried 300. 50,000 big ones. Well, let's see how many 22,000 big ones that's multiplied by 22,000 times. That's about 15 and a half 22,000 big ones. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so now we're into September and the beginning of the new season in the Nationals. Football league. But really, who cares? Because CBS doesn't have the Super Bowl in 1981. That's ABC's problem. And we've only talked about that in the past. Oh, yeah. Because tag team uh, was on the night before, yeah. A, tag team, and B, Whitney Houston's national anthem. Oh, my God. Best anthem ever. And C, the Giants manhandling the Bills. If no, you it call- wasn't a manhandle because that was the game that Scott Norwood was uh, just off. Yep. 2019, the final. That's all you need to know about it. I still think Thurman Thomas was robbed of that MVP. Damn you, Scott Norwood. And then in October, you have the League Championship Series and the World Series. And in the League Championship Series, we had in the ALCS, the Oakland Days against the Boston Red Sox. Not to tell you who I was cheering for, but as he reveals his New York Derek Jeter t-shirt on. Yeah, and I was also an Oakland A's fan at the time as well, so I was happy that the uh, A's beat the Red Sox. Very happy. Yeah. Yeah, it was a sweep. It was a sweep for nothing. And the four games, they weren't even close. Now, final scores of 9-1-4-1-4-1 and 3-1. The Red Sox scored four runs the whole series, and they scored a run in each game. It's like, yeah, the Red Sox scored four runs in the whole series. The Oakland Days did that in game two. Yeah. Well, remember, Oakland's pitching in 1990. Wow, lights out. Dave Stewart, Bob Welch, Dennis Eckersley as your closer. Dennis Eckersley as your closer. That's all you need to say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's all you need to know. But, oh, game four would be very infamous in this series because Roger Clemens was ejected in only the first inning. Yeah, he was talking to uh, home plate umpire Terry Cooney and Boston's Joe Morgan, who was the manager at the time. Morgan was arguing about the call to eject Clemens from the game because Clemens was, looked like he was talking into his glove. And here is Mike Gallego, who is three for seven in the series. A's with runners on first and second. That's McGuire at second. Randolph at first. And Terry Cooney arguing with Tony Pena. And Joe Morgan gets into the fray now. 
And you don't often see a manager get thrown in a playoff for a series. Weaver has, Earl Weaver in the past. I thought that possibly it was a balk call, and Cooney came from behind home plate. Now, the announcers are confused because they think Morgan's the guy ejected. He's ejected Clemens. First of all, the scouting report on the umpires. Yeah, this is a rotation. And you see, Clemens is just standing there like he doesn't know what's going on. Managers and players has a very short fuse. Tends to get upset a little easily, and this is an example of it. Well, could you believe it? I mean, you say they just threw... Oh my! He just threw something out towards Vic Voltaggio. Well, it's a Clemens bin full of sunflower seeds. Clemens is coming after. And, and now Clemens has just found out. Has He's like, what? Was shouting some things down at Cooney about the questionable balls and strikes. I got to tell you, even though you're not allowed to do that in a game like this, you don't throw out a pitcher like this. You know, umpires used to be like your grandfather. They'd walk away. They'd let you have a say. And let you get it out of your system, but now they're like the spoiled little Look at that, there's ice all over. What the, what just happened here? Hold on a second. What just happened right I'm here? still trying to figure this out here. Okay, let's watch. <laughs> what the, one of the Boston players, I think, and the coach just push each other. Like what the This has totally gone off the rails, obviously. Well, I mean, shows nope. when, when, no, what it really is, not just off the rails, what this really shows is the frustration of a team down 3 nothing and can't score to save their lives. Very true. But yeah, I think it was just the uh, Red Sox that year just could not get a run in that ALCS to save their lives. Hey, Mike, isn't this the year where they traded Jeff Bagwell away? <laughs> Uh, it would have been, yeah, that fall because Jeff Bagwell debuted in, uh, early, uh, 1991. So that would have been when they traded away Larry Anderson, the, the relief pitcher we've actually mentioned, I believe in a previous episode for Jeff Bagwell. Yeah. Dave Stewart, by the way, MVP of the ALCS, but now let's go into the national league championship series. So, oh uh, yes. The reds of the pirates. Taking it to six. Yeah. And the Reds at this time, managed by Lou Pinella, which would be his first year in Cincinnati after, uh, you know what happened with Pete Rose. We're not even going to say it. So Yeah. Yeah. And of course, uh, the Pirates would be managed by Jim Leland at this point. Yeah. And this would be the first of three straight trips to the NLCS for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And well... It- kept getting worse and worse for the Pirates as the early 90s went on, but yeah. But, uh, oh, yeah. here's here's a fun fact, okay? Between Game 2 in Cincinnati and Game 3 in Pittsburgh, the two teams took two days off instead of one, because that Sunday, on October 7th, the Pittsburgh Steelers needed to use Three Rivers Stadium to use for their scheduled game against the San Diego Chargers. So game three and the rest of the series was pushed back a day. Yeah. Thank God we don't live in an era of dual purpose stadiums anymore. Yep. Thanks Las Vegas. But uh, Pittsburgh took game one, four to three. Cincinnati would take game two, two to one. 
Reds took game three in Pittsburgh, six to three, and game four, five to three. Pittsburgh would stay alive, winning three to two in game five. And then in uh, game six, uh, in the bottom of the seventh inning with the score tied 1 1, Luis Criones hit the game winning hit, and Glenn Braggs would rob Camelo Martinez of a two run home run in the ninth inning to preserve the NLCS and the Reds' first National League pennant since 1976. And Rob Dibble and Randy Myers would be named co-MVPs of the series. And from there, it is on to the World Series where the Reds proceeded to break a 10-year-old Chico's heart by sweeping the Oakland A's for nothing. It's official now. Summer is over, but look what lies ahead. You know, the Reds and their fans have been waiting for these moments since 1976. It's not a real long time ago, but when you're talking baseball, it's a lifetime. And so you can understand why the good folks here in Cincinnati have been celebrating nonstop and why just this afternoon over 7,000 of them held a pep rally in downtown Fountain Square. You know what color they've been painting this town. But there's a group of Northern Californians who have made it a habit to spoil the party. And soon we'll start finding out whether this October is a time for destiny or dynasty. And so on this pleasant 68-degree autumn evening in the Queen City, it's Game 1 of the World Series, the Oakland Athletics and the Cincinnati Reds on CBS Sports. And hi again, everybody. I'm Pat O'Brien, along with Jack Buck, Tim McCarver, and Jim Cott. Welcome to our CBS Sports coverage of the 1990 World Series. Well, a newspaper here this morning summed up the local feeling, the underdog Reds versus the awesome A's. And why not? After all, Oakland is riding a remarkable streak of 10 straight postseason games, including sweeps of last year's World Series against the Giants and last week's American League Championship Series against the Red Sox. The Cincinnati Reds have their share of accomplishments to be proud of as well. This year, they became the first team in the National League to lead the regular season standings from wire to wire. And, of course, they overcame a tough Pittsburgh squad in a six-game NLCS. Well, you got to remember, in 1990, the A's were heavy favorites in that World Series. Oh, but yes. I mean, we're talking about a 103-59 record against the 91-71 record, and the A's were just red hot. You're talking about the uh, batting A's were back. Uh, what? Who do we have here? Um, well, you yeah. have Canseco. You got McGuire on uh, Oakland, but you also have Ricky Henderson. Um, I think you got you Will- Walt Weiss. Walt Weiss, definitely. Willie McGee. Terry Steinbach. Willie Randolph was on the A's in 1990. I did not realize that. I didn't realize that either. And we're talking about AL Rookies of the Year. Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire, Walt Weiss. But also, they had a hell of pitching staff. I mean, they had a one-two punch of Dave Stewart and Bob Welch. They were dominant. 
And like I said earlier, you had Dennis Eckersley as your closer, and he was, was just about the say. best closer at that time. Oh, yes. He was the best closer at the time. But imagine this is when basically Jose Rijo, who that guy be, became the hero of Cincinnati because he won the first game. 7 nothing, And then he turns around and won the closer. Two to one. Yeah, he was the MVP, but Greg and I had this little discussion slash argument before we started recording. Mm-hmm. I told Greg, I thought the MVP of the series should have been Billy Hatcher. And I agree with him because Billy Hatcher in that World Series batted like 750. He had like an insane hitting streak in that World Series. He had like, I think, eight or nine consecutive hits. But I think he was like, I think he had like some injury in like game four where he got hit by a pitch and he had to be taken out of the game. So I think that's why he didn't get MVP. I, I can't argue with Jose Rio because he was very good in that World Series. But I mean, if he had played the whole game, I think Billy Hatcher might have made a case for the MVP award that year. But eh, that's how it goes. And also, by no means should we say that the rest of the Reds were slouches. They had their own good team. They had Barry Larkin. They had Chris Sabo. Eric Davis. Young Eric Davis at the time, yeah. Uh, their pitching staff, their bullpen, that, that was the time they had uh, Rob Dibble, Bob and, Dibble uh, and Randy Myers and Norm Charlton. The Nasty yeah. Boys. Nasty Boys. The Nasty Boys, yep. Yeah. Oh, one thing I want to mention in this World Series was, okay, now this is the funny part. Game two in this series went to, like, extra innings. So at one point, the Reds were trying to um, need an emergency pitcher, so they were trying to get Tom Browning to be, like, an emergency pitcher just in case the game went long or anything. But here's the funny part. Like, his wife was going into labor, like, during the game, so he had to leave the stadium. And I think at one point, Tim McCorver says on the television, hey, uh, if anyone knows where Tom Browning is, oh, can boy. you please tell him <laughs> to get back to the ballpark? Because the Reds might need you to pitch later on in case this game goes long. I'll tell you, something else has transpired in this ballpark, in this ballpark that is unbelievable. Tom Browning, who is slated for... So starting game three, as you see Bill Bates, he'll be the pinch hitter for Rob Dibble. We just learned that Tom Browning earlier left the ballpark. His wife went into labor. The Reds clubhouse called up to Marty Brenneman, the local radio announcer here in Cincinnati. He's been doing Reds baseball for 17 years, asking Marty to make a public announcement and tell Tom there's Marty right there to the left of your screen. And tell Tom Browning to return to the ballpark. And Marty Bre- Marty Brenneman made that announcement because Lou Pinella might be out of pitcher. And he may be thinking of using Tom Browning in the game tonight. I've never heard of anything that unusual happen in a ball game. <laughs> but thankfully the game ended in the bottom of the tenth, so they did not need to worry about going to Tom Browning or running out of pitchers or whatever. Could you imagine if Lou Pinella had to go to like a position player? Like That would be crazy. Hey, Chris Sabo, can crazy. you pitch like two innings? 
Okay, and in November, you have the NFLs going on, and in December, we have bowl season. And, of course, this would be the last, well, one of the last, if not the last seasons for the CFA, the College Football Association. Oh, I forgot about the CFA. Remote, yeah, because uh, CBS had the, the bowl games of the CFA, and of course, in 1990, that would be when the Big Ten and the Pac-10 split from the CFA and signed new deals with ABC. We'll go over all of this momentarily. But I think, okay, now if I'm not mistaken here, hold on a second because I'm searching it right now. Oh, the 1991 Cotton Ball that year. Oh, this is the famous Cotton Ball that was uh, Miami against Texas, where Miami just smoked Texas 46-3. to And I think Miami had something like over 200 penalty yards in that game. And they still smoked Texas in that game. It was something ridiculous. Oh, Miami set cotton ball and school records for most penalties and most penalty yards in a single game, 202 penalty yards, many of which were for unsportsmanlike conduct. Oh, God. And partially as a result of this game, the NCAA instituted a new rule stipulating that excessive celebration would be worth a 15-yard penalty. And something I want to note is, do you know who was... uh, in his freshman season at the University of Miami in January of 1991. I know, I know. Mike, Mike, say it. Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. Yes! And if you watch the uh, 30 for 30 of the U, you can actually spot Dwayne Johnson on the sideline. Young Rock Season 2 coming to NBC. Can't wait. You love it. And that was basically the dream season. Of course, there was the 1992 Winter Olympics and the 1994 Winter Olympics, but for our purposes, we will not discuss them here. So, all of that, that entire package that we just went over, cost CBS $7.4 billion. And when the dust settled, CBS managed, they did manage to gain ground on ABC and NBC, but only because those two networks took hits, took very notable hits. They CBS wins by doing absolutely nothing. Ultimately, the dream season was a bit of a nightmare if you think about it. Because you look at some of the events that happened with the end of the Final Four and the 30-point blowout. And then you have the sweep in the World Series of the Reds over the A's. The Pistons taking five games to knock out the Blazers. And Super Bowl twenty four. Need we say more? Basically put, events were over before they ever got a chance to get going. 
Yeah, I mean, as we said, what would the only exciting events be from the Dream Season? The Daytona 500 and the Masters? That's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. But that was only one problem. Because CBS found itself, well, actually, television by and large, found itself with a bit of a problem in 1990. Let me guess. The Persian Gulf Crisis. A. And the ensuing recession. Ooh. Yeah, and uh, Kevin Blackstone wrote in the Baltimore Sun at the time that perceived value for sports wasn't there. And he was quoting Dick Ebersole, who, by the way, at this point, would have paid $600 million for the NBA for the next five seasons. Sports is like any other business. You pay for what you get. The thing about CBS, though, they paid a lot of money, were hoping to play the long game with the Olympics, but did not have that return on investment thanks to global economies sort of shrinking in the early 1990s. Man, what an ironic thing from Dick Ebersole. Also, really, when the NBA went to NBC, they just had a much better presentation. Yeah. Uh-huh. CBS just looked dated if you look back at the late 80s and uh, into 1990. And then you've got NBC with Round Ball Rock, Fresh Graphics, and also you've got that Supplementary Show. Again, we've talked about it a few times. NBA inside stuff. So it just felt more complete and more like a better overall effort. Oh, yeah. They're not just airing games. They've got this weekly series that are aimed to to kids who are watching Michael Jordan and uh, Akeem Olajuwon and Kevin Johnson and Sean Kemp at this point, early 90s. Yeah, they're they're trying to bring in that new – generation of basketball fans and i'm sorry i I watched the nba on cbs back in the day it it just seems stale and dated even like i said back in the mid to late 80s two totally different types of presentations i think yep meanwhile with the college football association we start the uh long death march to obscurity with uh, the Big Ten and the Pac-10 splitting off and signing up with ABC, and Notre Dame splitting off and signing an exclusive deal with NBC, which, ironically, would actually have their own sort of dream season much later in 1996, if you remember seeing the end of coverage sounders on NBC Sports. The NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, the PGA Tour, Notre Dame Football, the USGA Championships, Wimbledon, the Ryder Cup, the French Open, and the Olympic Games in Atlanta, all on America's sports leader, NBC. Yeah, they basically used their NFL and NBC music at the time for it. Yeah, and they basically used the same sort of playing the long game strategy The one thing that was different between uh, 1996 and 1990, though, 
The Olympics were in America, and they were an event. You had ladies' gymnastics. You had the Dream Team 2 take Olympic gold. It was actually Dream Team 3 Chico. Dream Team 2 was at the 1994 FIBA World Championships. And this was just a spectacle. Well, don't forget, you also had Michael Johnson and Donovan Bailey in the track and field. And you had uh, Carl Lewis. I'm Carl Lewis. Going for his ninth gold medal. Yeah. And NBC was willing to play the long game, and it ended up paying off big for them to the point where they still have the Olympics. CBS, on the other hand, they've spent $7.4 billion and never made that money back. In fact, they wanted to go to Major League Baseball to help recoup some of the losses. And Major League Baseball said, nope. But again, that's a story for another day. Yep. So we have diminishing returns. We have the recession. We also have the advent of cable. Because a lot of these events were being outsourced, if I'm not mistaken, to cable television, TBS, ESPN. Pretty sure TNT had something. Sports Channel had the NHL. There was just a lot of inventory and an increasing market force at inventory. And because of that, the ad dollars were shrinking. The networks were paying more and getting less. And in 1990, it just was the perfect storm of all of this coming together to turn CBS Sports 90's dream season into a multi-billion dollar nightmare. Jane Grant, who was an analyst for Moody's at the time, said CBS paid too much Advertising prices have come down. Now they're thinking, how can we get out of this? And ultimately, she doesn't think anybody would pay the fees again that CBS did. There was a time broadcasters thought there was an insatiable appetite for sports on television. The ratings aren't supporting that. Sports right fees will come down. And Steve Sternberg from Bozell Advertising in New York corroborates this by saying, Once these contracts expire, I wouldn't be surprised if you don't see regular season sports go to cable soon. Networks just want the big events anyway. And amazingly enough, that's exactly what happens. The networks get the big events, everything else goes to cable. Prime example of this would be March Madness, where CBS gets the marquee matchups, or they used to get the marquee matchups, everything else would go to TNT, TBS, and True TV, but now it seems like they're all cycling. Yeah, because Turner wants to have like some murky games too. They don't want to have like just the crappy like game between like a 10 seed and a 15 seed in the second round. So yep. there you go. Well, 
that's 1990 for CBS, and they had all these marquee events, and most of them did not turn out well. They ended up losing their number one announcer, and as a result, of all the money they lost, they all became just things on TV. Before we end this episode, I have something. It's eBay Price is Right. All right, guys, you are bidding on. A 1990 CBS Sports NCAA Final Four media pin. That's right. You could have a media pin that probably Brett Musburger was wearing right before he found out that he got fired. That's horrible, Greg. You know what? I had a basketball with that logo on it. Is that the Pizza Hut basketball? That was the Pizza Hut basketball. I had that. My cousin had that same basketball, yeah. You probably got that from getting all your pizzas from Bucket. Yeah! All the personal pan pizzas from Bucket. Hey, Mike, you remember going to the Pizza Hut and getting all those personal pan pizzas from Bucket, right? I still got my Bucket button, yo. I'm sorry, they didn't give me any sort of Bucket rewards because, unfortunately, they don't uh, give you pizzas when you only do coloring books. Oh... (laughs) All right. Oh, gosh. So you're bidding on the buy it now price for this media pin. So, Mike, I'm going to start the bidding with you. It's a nice looking pin. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I'm going to go $24.99. Chico. $10. The price of this pin, $12. $12? Twelve dollars. Twelve dollars stands between you. I I just might get that. Good good deal. It it really is nice. Hey, you could make a best offer for it. You could offer ten dollars for the seller right now if you wanted. You know what? I'll wait until after the show. But in the meantime, you can watch us relive all the shows that aired when each of us were ten years old. At it was a thing on TV.com. We have all the episodes, all the minisodes, all the live shows including the live show that Greg and I did with the premiere on Disney Plus of The Book of Boba Fett. And hey, Chica, who knows? Maybe this week we'll do a live show because something's premiering on HBO Max this week. Yeah. Yeah. A show starring an invisible man. Give me some of that, why don't you? Mike, can you believe this? HBO Max, they're premiering a new show with a guy who's invisible. How is that going to work? Who'd actually watch anything like that? Well, I would. Somebody. Well, that's your money. That's not mine. Well, who knows? Maybe he knows that guy in the WWE who no one can see. Maybe. Are, Are you talking about the same person that did the hefty trash bag commercials that nobody could see? This, oh, oh, or it's the same guy 
that nobody could see who stands next to Nicole Byer on TPS's wipeouts. Yeah. Or the guy who was in that one movie with Amy Schumer. Remember that one Amy Schumer movie where apparently she was acting alongside no one? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Why is this hey, a hey, ha- why hey, is this Greg. a habit where there's like this invisible guy? I don't know. Hey, hey, Greg. hey Greg. What? What? Fake mustache. Yeah. Mike, can you tell that this is a fake mustache? Wait, you're wearing a mustache? See, I fooled you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, well, that's going to do it for this episode. Remember, we're on all social media at It Was A Thing On TV, except for Facebook. We are on it. It Was A Thing On TV podcast. And if you're on YouTube, don't forget to like our videos, subscribe to our feed, hit the notification bell, so you can stay up to date on future installments. Like the one we have coming up later this week where we go back to the halcyon pinball halls guys well ever since i was a young boy i played the silver ball from soho dan to brighton i must have played them all but did you stand like a statue and become one with the machine yeah i guess so yeah you know greg plays a mean game of pinball call it it had a pinball machine, the replay. And that's coming up this Thursday, right here on It Was a Thing on TV. Thanks for listening. Please be kind to each other, and we will see you next week. Hey, Greg, uh, you remember your mustache that you had earlier? Yeah. Yeah, that one. It would look a lot better if it looked like that greasy mustache that Pat O'Brien had back in the day. I mean, Check this out. I mean, look at this. We got this class act mustache here. We got the mullet. We got the balding front with the mullet in the back. He looks like Miguel Ferrer at a Robocop in 1988. Look at this. It's Miguel Ferrer with a mustache, basically. You know, that would have made Twin Peaks a lot better if as Albert. He could have had the Pat O'Brien stash and it would have made Twin Peaks even more better. Right? Yeah. Ah, missed opportunity there, David Lynch and Mark Frost. Totally. Wow! You are looking live at the King of the Hobos. This beautiful Campanamati statuette retails at $279. But if you call in the next five minutes, it could be yours for $42.95. It's one heck of a bargain, and it's coming your way on CSN. It's the Cable Shopping Network with your host, Brent Musburger. Hello, everybody. I'm Brent Musburger, and welcome once again to the Cable Shopping Network. All right, we've got quite a lineup of merchandise to tell you about, but first, with me, as always, is Jimmy the Greek. Jimmy, what a week it's been right here on CSM. You said it, Brent. Talk about your surprises. We don't sell a single beaded sweater, but the entire collection of string art goes in two minutes. All right, Jimmy, let's set the stage for tonight. What have we got coming up here on Sibby SM? Well, Brett, in the next hour, we got one of my favorites, a set of collector's plates commemorating the king and I. 
All right, any particular plate in the series to watch out for? Wait, keep your eye on Shall We Dance? All right, that's coming up later on CSN. But right now, let's get back to that beautiful Campanamati, King of the Hobos. All right, no calls yet. Less than a minute. Yeah, we're running out of time. All right, we got a call. Hello, Brent. Yeah. This is Mavis Babcock from Shreveport, Louisiana. All right, doing a little home shopping, Louisiana style. Well... I'm just calling to say that you are a class act, and the way that CBS treated you was a disgrace. Well, I appreciate that, Mavis, but I don't want to dwell on the past. I'm no longer at CBS. I'm totally committed to CSN. Well, you, you just did not deserve that kind of treatment. Well, thank you. That's very kind. Now, Mavis, how about that Captain King of the Hobos? Huh? huh? I, well, I don't, I don't know. Uh, Mavis, hold on. I think Jimmy's got something to say to you. Mavis, I got to tell you, this is genuine Capodamonte. Now, some previous issues have increased in value as much as 300%. Well, I really only called just to say, oh, well, how much is it? Well, for the next 20 seconds, it's $42.95. Come on, Mavis. We're dying out here on CSN. Well, okay, Brent, out of respect for you, I'll buy it. All right. We're going to give you a couple of honks for that one. Cajun style. All right. Let's take a look at what we've got coming up in the next hour on CSN. A set of gold nugget pinky rings with a setting of crushed faux diamonds and sea pearls. Now, Brent, these rings are cut extra wide, and that's great if you have pudgy fingers like mine. All right, and they'll be coming your way right here, right now, on CSN. No, no, something, Brent. These are going to be big with your black shoppers, and I'll tell you why. No, no, that's all right, Jimmy. No, no, no. You see, your black shopper goes for your flashier things. Now, if it's shiny or pointy or has any fur trim at all. Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. take a little break right now, but folks, don't turn that channel, because we're coming right back, right here, right now, live from New York, it's Saturday night. (laughs) 